morning. So I'm going to start with an illustration that is going to peg you, like you're going to know exactly how old I am, right? Like this is, so how many remember the No Fear brand in the early to mid-90s? Yes, all my guys in that age range. There we go. So when I was a certain age, like it was the early to mid-90s, and so it appealed to me. And the idea, like this is a brand that was like, the back of truck stickers and hats that were designed to be worn backwards and t-shirts and sweatshirts. And the, the focus of the brand was like, I'm tough enough that I don't have to be afraid of anything. That was, that was the core of what that brand was. And looking back, that was probably a little mislabeled. Uh, there might've been a little bit of fear kind of sprinkled in there. And if you want to look at it psychologically, it probably came from some deep insecurity. But this is my people, so I don't want to call that out. Like, that's just, we'll say maybe. We'll say maybe. But the thing is, is none of us are, can be so strong or so tough that we're completely beyond fear. There's always something out there that can be scary. So I, I'm not a person that's naturally given to a lot of fear, but, you know, last year or maybe, maybe two years ago, there's a tornado warning. And so we're sitting around as a family, like, watching a movie, and there's a tornado warning. And you know what? My heart rate starts going. Like, that's terrifying. Because it's not just, oh, there's a thing that might happen. No, there's a tornado. It's real, and my boys are here. And so now there's some fear that's motivating me, right? Or, or if you're driving down the, the freeway, and, you know, it's winter, and all of a sudden you hit some black ice, and you realize... I'm not in control of this 2,000 pound vehicle and I'm moving at 70 miles an hour. There's, there is a, a healthy amount of fear that just kicks in. Like you might know what to do intellectually, but also you're terrified in that moment. There's, there's no way around that. But the fact is, is that Jesus commands us in this passage that we're gonna be talking about today several times not to have any fear. He says, don't be afraid. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have any fear. You don't have to, ha you don't have to live in that. And so even though it's, it's difficult for us as human beings to not experience fear when we're doing something that's new or challenging or difficult, Jesus is saying, as you follow me, no matter what the circumstances are as you follow me, you don't have to be afraid because I'm, I'm going to be there for you. So we're, we're going to talk this morning about fearlessly following Jesus. And, and we're going to talk about that in the context of this is what Jesus has called us to do. This is the mission that we're on for Jesus. And Jesus says, as you live for me, you don't have to live in fear. There's going to be circumstances that are terrifying. There are going to be things that happen that are going to cause you to want to be afraid. And you don't have to be afraid. You can rely on me. So we're going to be in Matthew 10 still, like we're still going through Matthew 10. And as we're going through, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is talking to his disciples so Randy talked about it last week that Jesus is specifically talking to his disciples. He's calling them out to be on a mission, to be on assignment. That was what we, he talked about. And so we're continuing that conversation. Jesus is still just talking to his 12 disciples, but he kind of expands it. As he talks, it's, he stops giving just explicit commands that is only going to be for them on this mission. And he starts generally about what it means to follow him. Um, and, and that transition happens in verse 24. We'll read it and you'll see how he transitions that. So this is broad instructions to people that are following Jesus. It's given specifically to disciples, but it's for anyone that is actually trying to be a disciple of Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, 
how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus starts off saying, if you're my servants, you can expect to be treated the same way that I am. If you're people that are following me, if you're focused on trying to be obedient to me, you can expect to be treated the same way that I'm treated. So the assumption is that he's talking to people that are trying to follow him. So that's, that's the focus of all of this. And if the challenge is, is that if we're like Jesus, we'll be treated by Jesus. When we look at his life, that's not super encouraging. Like we think about what Jesus went through and I don't necessarily know that I want to live through some of the things that Jesus lived through or maybe more specifically, die the way that Jesus died. He spent his life being rejected by his, his fellow countrymen. He lived as somewhat of an outcast, even in his own country, in his own religious tradition. And ultimately, the religious leadership focused on how they could kill him. That, that ended up being their goal. And what he's specifically talking about here, because he hasn't been crucified yet, but the thing he's talking about here is actually that the religious leadership accused him of being demonic. Like that's a pretty pretty harsh, pretty aggressive thing to accuse someone of, that you know, you're, you're controlled by a demon, you're possessed by a demon. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be obedient to me, if they treat me like that, you can't really expect something different. And so we don't necessarily think of Jesus as being demonic. We don't think that way. But we also have to recognize that as we follow him, People that reject Jesus because of who he is are also going to reject us for, for following him. That's a part of the package. And so everything that Jesus was accused of, everything that Jesus went through, everything that, that other people tried to pin on Jesus, all of that is within the potential of how we will be treated as followers of Jesus. And he's given us this heads up. So we can't walk into situations and be like, wow, this person was really mad at me for following Jesus. That shouldn't be entirely shocking to us. I'm not saying you look for it. I'm not saying you try and be mean so that other people will be mean to you. That's not, that's not how that works. But as you just honestly try and follow Jesus, as you honestly try and live for him, there are going to be people that are going to be frustrated and aggressive toward you because of that decision. And so Jesus is saying, as that happens, be aware that this is the potential. However, that doesn't have to be a thing that drives fear in our lives. And so he gives a couple of reasons why we don't have to be afraid. He says, listen, you're going to be treated badly. That's part of the package. Also, you don't have to be afraid. And let me tell you why you don't have to be afraid. So Jesus says a couple times from 26 to 31, like, don't fear, don't be afraid, have no fear of them. And, and every single one of those is connected not to us and how amazing we are, but to something about God and who God is, and what God does, and what God is like. And so our basis for not being afraid as we follow Jesus is, is the person of God, who he is, how he acts, and, and his power. We talked over the summer about Joshua being courageous because he was on mission, because he was doing what God asked him to do, and because he had a relationship with God. This is Jesus saying almost the same thing. Like, it was hard for me to write parts of this message without repeating stuff from that message, because having courage and not being afraid are kind of connected. So verse 26, this is verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. 
So the first thing, the first reason that Jesus gives us for not needing to be afraid is that ultimately the truth will emerge. And there's two halves to this. The first is that sins that are committed secretly, that are painful, are ultimately going to be revealed, right? Nothing that's covered up that will not be revealed. So think of evil that is done quietly and hidden by people in power. We know this happens. We hear of, you know, times when this gets revealed, but we also have a pretty good understanding that there are a lot of times when people do evil things and they get away with it because they're powerful enough or they're connected enough or whatever that that doesn't come out. I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm just talking about the way that people live their lives and people do bad things and they don't want to be thought of as a bad person. So they, they hide it, they bury it. I had a friend who I worked with for a while um, and, or no, I didn't work with him, but we had conversations about work and he was consistently shorted in his paycheck. Like his checks would come back and he would do the math and be like, I, they didn't give me, like he was an hourly employee, right? So he'd go in, he'd punch in, he'd get his hours and he was working consistent overtime. And he's like, every check I'm doing the math and it's short. And it wasn't just taxes. It wasn't just the normal stuff that would be taken out. He's like, no, I think they're shorting me hours. And so he went to, the, to HR and he talked to him about it. And they're like, oh yeah, sorry about that. Let's fix that, right? But then it happened again. And it kept happening. And he kept going to HR and being like, guys, what is the deal? Every week I'm short a couple of hours. What, what is going on? And they would always apologize. And then they would give him like, oh yeah, well, so we have this instead of this. And they'd argue with him after a while. And so he's starting to see like, this is a pattern. This isn't a thing that they do accidentally. This is just, they don't want to pay me what they owe me. So he took it to the National Labor Board. Like he had all this evidence of all these different times that they shorted him and not refunded him. And so he goes and he, he submits this evidence. And basically they got a sternly worded letter. You shouldn't do that. Because it's one guy. And he knew that his coworkers were probably experiencing that too, but nobody else was as frustrated with it. They're just like, yeah, well that happens, which I don't understand, it's your money, you worked for it. But that was, their, that was the, how they acted, right? And so he was so frustrated. And then they made it difficult on him. Like, they would harass him a little bit about it. And ultimately, he's like, this company does not like me. They don't want me to actually work for them. They want free labor. And so I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. He left. And ultimately, the company went under. Shocking, terrible business practices. These things happen. But you know what? There's somebody, there was some manager or some director or whatever within that company that made the decision... I'm okay with shorting people on their checks and I'm not gonna deal with that because I wanna hit my budget. I need this X level of productivity and I'm gonna hit my budget. So there was a person that made that decision that impacted my buddy and that person got away because there was a strongly worded letter and then that person had to, like the company went under, everybody had to find a new job and there was never any repercussions. You think about that and we know that that happens and we know that worse things happen. There's a whole bunch of things that people with power and influence do and hide. Or people without a lot of power but are really sneaky and they get away with it. And what Jesus is saying is when those things frustrate us, there's going to be justice. God knows and sees all of that and he's not going to be like, well, they got away with it so good job them, I guess. Like, no, God understands the unfairness of that and ultimately he is going to judge that. God knows that, he understands that and he's not going to let that slide for eternity. And then on the flip side of that, there's also truths that we know to be true that people aren't really excited about hearing and try and squelch. And Jesus is like, 
ultimately the things that I've told that my disciples are going to be proclaimed. So for us, one of the very real ones is Jesus is God and, and he came in the flesh and died for us. It's like, we just, we proclaim that, we say that all the time. That wasn't a thing that was very popular, still is not very popular, but we don't whisper that anymore. We proclaim that from at least the stage at Lakeside and also from a lot of other places. We're we're not shy about announcing that, even though there's a lot of people that might not be comfortable with that. And ultimately, we know from other passages of Scripture that every single human being on the planet is going to kneel and say, Jesus is Lord. Like, that's the ultimate time when that truth is going to be revealed. But that was whispered in the past. That was a hidden truth. And now it's being pronounced more and more. And ultimately, that will be fully understood. And so Jesus is saying, listen, God knows, God understands both the good things that are hidden and the bad things are hidden. And ultimately, all of those are going to be revealed and, and everyone will know all of those things. And so we don't have to be afraid because ultimately, the truth is going to come out. Whether it's that we tried to do the right thing in a situation or that we were hurt and nobody realized that, whatever the situation is, we know that ultimately God knows, God understands, and he's going to bring all that and make that right. So that's the first reason. The second reason is in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. The second piece the body is not supreme. The body is not the ultimate thing. So Jesus' thought is, is you might die, but that's not the worst thing that can happen, which is a little weird for us. We may occasionally talk about a fate worse than death, sort of dramatically, but none of us really think that's a thing. <laughs> like, we don't think like, oh, that's worse than dying. Like, no, we're like, I'm pretty sure that dying's the worst thing that can happen. And so a lot of times our fear is based on our physical existence, our physical reality. And Jesus says, listen, if you're my disciples, if you're my followers, there is a chance that you're going to get killed. And I understand that that's a possibility, but also that's not the end. That's not the worst thing that can happen because you're a person that's not just a body. You're not less than a body, but you're not only a body. And so as a person that has a body, that body might die. And that's a bad thing. He doesn't say that's a good thing. He says that's a bad thing if that body dies. But what's worse is if the soul that lives beyond that body doesn't have a relationship with God and ends up without anything, right? So you can have death for your body. You can have ultimately destruction for your soul. And I don't mean that like there's a whole thing about annihilationism and, and whether or not souls are eternal, all that kind of stuff. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is God has control over the eternal existence of your soul. And so one of the things that Jesus promises his followers is like, you're going to die physically, probably. But if that happens, you're ultimately still going to rise from the dead. You're going to have a new physical body, a better physical body, because God is in control of both physical and spiritual elements, right? And so God protects your souls for eternity and also gives you back a body that's better. So he's like, yeah, I understand that you need to be worried about the ones that can kill your body, but ultimately you lose your body. That's not the end of you. You need to make sure that your soul is in a place where you've got a relationship with the one that controls both body and soul. Don't miss here the power of God. Because I, I think as we think about some of these things, we're like, well, I, I'll live forever. We'll, we'll live forever not because of who we are. 
We live forever because of who God is and, and the power that God has. He's not limited to preserving us as physical bodies. He can preserve us regardless because he is God. He has control over bodies, over souls, over everything that exists. He is the one that ultimately has that power. And so as we think that through, what we realize is God's control over that is a huge comfort because of the relationship we have with God, which is what we see in, in reason number three, verse 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. I'm just going to make the joke. God knowing my hairs is less impressive than for most of you. <laughs> it's sitting right there. I can't miss it. We call this reasoning from the lesser to the greater. So there's this logical fact, God cares about sparrows. Do you know how unimportant sparrows are? <laughs> like Jesus says, oh, there's two that are sold for a penny. That's not the extent of how, like sparrows, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're one of the most common birds on the continent and they're not even native to North America. They're just here. Uh, and, and you look in your backyard and there's like 300 of them and they just eat seeds and hang around, like whatever. You don't think about sparrows as being at all important. And yet, God sees a sparrow and he knows that sparrow and he cares about that sparrow. I can't tell two sparrows apart. And yet God sees every single one of them as individual and important. And he knows when they fall. And so then he says, okay, so if that's how important a sparrow is and God knows and cares how much more important are you? And God knows and cares for you every bit as much, if not more. So it's not, the, it's not really about the hair. It's about God knows details about you that you don't even think are important. Like you don't care how many hairs you have. Like you might, you might care a little bit if there's a drastic change in how, what the number is. Like I get that. But also you're not like, oh, I had, you know, two billion hairs yesterday and I've lost three. Like, no, that's not a big deal. You don't actually care that much. And God still knows that detail. That's how much God cares about you. And when we connect that back to God as the one that has powers over bodies and souls, Suddenly, that's awesome. Like, we have a God that cares about us so much that he knows every single unimportant detail about us, and also, he's powerful enough to protect us and guide us and walk us through whatever the circumstance is because he has all the power. Suddenly, you're like, you know what? I don't have to be afraid. God knows me that well, cares about me that much, and is that powerful. I really don't have a reason to fear. So the reason that we're not afraid is that we have a God that loves us unconditionally. Uh, John, who was one of Jesus' disciples that would have heard this, uh, talks about this sort of as, a, as an extension in, in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone whose love has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so the core of who God is, is that he's loving. Like that's, that's his identity. One of the things that he identifies himself as is, I love you. That's who he is. 
And so that care that he has for us as individuals, as his unique creation, that's not something where he's like, well, I should probably work on caring more about the things that I made. That's who he is. That's not like an add-on. That's not like a bonus feature. That's, that's the core of God's being that he loves. He loves us partially because he created us and also because that's who he is. He actually cares. He actually is the one that has invested in us. He defines himself in his relationship with us as loving. And so that means the person that cares about you the most deeply, the most unselfishly, the most seriously, the most intentionally out of the human beings around you, the person that you look at them and you're like, that person loves me more than anyone else. That person is just a small reflection of how much God loves you. Like you think about how much some people love you. And I don't know how you've experienced love, but there is somebody that you know loves you. And that person loves you less than God does. God loves you a lot. And if you don't believe that, if you're just like, well, he can say that because he's powerful and he knows things. Look at, look at keep reading in 1 John and he says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest, so made real among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So our love for God is rooted in the fact that he loved us first and that he died on our behalf. Like not too many people love us that much. Like Jesus was God in eternity past and he said, you know what? I love my people too much to let them die in their sin. I'm willing to set aside all the glory of heaven, all the power that I have, and I'm gonna come to earth as a human being and I'm gonna live among them. I'm gonna have a body and, and that body's gonna be killed because that's what has to happen for me to reconcile to these people. That's what has to happen for me to really have the relationship that I want with them. And so Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. And so when we come to him in faith and we're like, wow, Jesus, I do wanna have a relationship with you. You love me more than anyone else. We confess our sins, we repent, and we're brought into the family of God. We're his children. We stand before him not as, as the rebels that we were born to be, but as his children, as people that he loves as individuals and has a relationship with. And so all of these different pieces of, of God's love culminate with that, that God cares about us more than anyone else, that he loves us more than anyone else, and that he's powerful enough to control it, and he still will do anything in order to have that relationship with us. All of those pieces come together, and that's why Jesus says, don't be afraid. So here's my question. What's the thing that makes you anxious or afraid? And which one of these truths can help you address that? Because sometimes we get sucked into there's this big problem and we don't think about the fact that we serve an infinite God. Or we, we think the problem is, is with me and we don't realize how much God loves us as individuals. And so all of these different truths have different applications in our lives. But if we're afraid of anything, if we're anxious about anything, then we can use these truths to say, this actually works against that and I can focus on that this week. That God has control over bodies that God loves me more than he loves anything else, and yet he still knows all the details, like all of those little details. And he's still the one that's in control of bodies and souls and all of this. So whatever the thing that you struggle with, what's the truth that you can use to push back on that so that you don't have to live in fear?
My big idea this morning is this. Because Jesus cares about us, we can fearlessly follow him no matter what. And I started with Jesus caring about us because the next section is about things that we're going to have to be afraid of. And so you have to establish the fact that God loves you and that God is with you and that he cares about you deeply as an individual before you can actually walk through the circumstances that Jesus is going to talk about next. So now we're going to talk about the no matter what part, <laughs> completely following Jesus. So Jesus says, I love you, I care about you this much, but also I have this expectation that you need to reorganize your life in order to really honestly follow me. And that, that causes some problems. Like we, we can be afraid of people because we don't understand how much God cares, but when we start to follow Jesus completely, we're brought into conflict with those people. And so that fear becomes a little bit more intense. It becomes a little bit more personal. So let's look at, at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I, will also, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus says this, he's saying, you need to have a public allegiance to me. I love you this much. Also, you need to not be nervous or afraid and hide that. And this is not popular in our culture. Our culture says that you can worship whoever you want, you can have whatever goals you want, but you need to keep that to yourself. We don't want, to we don't want you to talk about it. Like, be quiet. This is not about your public testimony. And as Christians, we recognize our following Jesus always involves some level of a public testimony. Our public, it's not that we're saved by our public testimony, it's that our willingness to be forward about our faith, to talk about Jesus, to, to have those conversations with people, that's a really good indicator of where we are within our relationship with Jesus. If I'm too afraid to talk about the God that loved himself or loved me and gave himself for me, then I probably don't have a great relationship with him. And if we're unwilling to stand up and proclaim our faith, that probably means we don't have very much faith. So it's, it's not that this is like the dividing line, it's that this is a really good indicator of, of where we're at. So then the next section makes it a little bit tougher because he's talking about like, don't be afraid. You need to be willing to be public with your faith. And that's a little bit nerve wracking depending on the circumstances. And then he says something that's really terrifying and a little bit confusing in 1034. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Like, whoa, time out. Not what I was expecting there. And the reason is because we talk about peace all the time. Like, we talk about Jesus bringing peace and, and peace on earth, right? We're going to celebrate Christmas and we're going to talk about peace on earth is what the angels say. And, and throughout the Gospels, there's conversations about peace. John 14 says, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, same group of people. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. So he's like, I'm coming to bring peace to you guys but also, I didn't come to bring peace. Like, I'm not sure where you're going with this, Jesus. And I think really the, the thing is, is that we have to be careful about how we define peace and how we think about what peace is. So Jesus did come to bring peace in some ways, but not in the way that he's talking about here. So the ways that Jesus came to bring peace. First, he came, he died for us, and he brings us peace with God. So we have a relationship with God. God is not coming to judge us. We have peace with him. So that relationship we have peace. 
And internally in our lives, because we don't have any struggle with God anymore, or struggle, but we're not under God's wrath, we have the opportunity for peace because we're walking with Jesus, we have a relationship with Jesus, so it's an, there's an internal peace. The type of peace that he's talking about here isn't anxiety or that's internal or between God. It's between us and other people that have specific expectations of us. There's going to be conflict there. So in, in 35, he expands it a little bit. He says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves sons or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus is talking about the conflict that comes when we're, our first loyalty is to Jesus. Because there are other people that expect to have all of our loyalty. And when we say, I'm following Jesus first and foremost, those people get frustrated because we're not fully committed to them. We're fully committed to Jesus. So as we follow Jesus and as we place him first in our lives, other people are kind of confused about why that is and they might demand some of that attention, some of that loyalty. And we have to be honest and say, listen, I'm following Jesus first and foremost and I love you, but you come lower than Jesus. R.T. France says this, the very purpose of Jesus' coming is not peace but a sword because the message of God's kingship is one which always has and always will lead to violent responses from those who are threatened by it. Now we see violent and we think, you know, physical fists. We don't deal with that that much in our culture. But there is conflict when we have relationships and Jesus becomes the first priority. Right, so you might be called selfish because you're like, I'm not coming to Sunday morning brunch with the family because I'm gonna be at church. And that's very low level. But there's also a level where you might not have relationships with some people in your family because they don't like the fact that you're following Jesus. They're offended by that, they're angry about that, and, and they break off that relationship. Like that's a distinct possibility. And, and in this country, that's not the end of the world because we don't have a really strong cultural expectation of family loyalty, but there's absolutely places in the world where saying that Jesus is more important to you than your immediate family would be considered disloyal to your family, offensive to your family, like you said something mean about them. Like it, it gets much worse in cultures that are less individualistic, more family oriented. So Healthy family relationships are absolutely a part of the faith, right? We're called to, to have healthy family relationships. We're called to, to love our spouses. We're called to, to be obedient to our parents and, and honor them. We're called to, to love our children and to not frustrate them and all these different things. And, and that's all true, but that all comes out of obedience to Jesus. Those things aren't prioritized above Jesus. Craig Bloomberg says this, devotion to family is a cardinal Christian duty but it never must become absolute to the extent that devotion to God is compromised, right? There's a balance there where we say, listen, I follow Jesus and all of this, these family relationships that I have, those flow out of that love for Jesus that I have. Those things don't come before Jesus. So thinking all of that through, the question becomes, what's a relationship in your life that might have a higher priority than Jesus? And that can be tough because the relationships that we have, a lot of times we assume that if they're, they're with people that are honoring God, that we assume that that's, that's a good thing. 
And I think for the most part that's true, but we do sometimes place family or spouses or kids or someone else on a pedestal where we're more focused on our relationship with them than we, we really are with Jesus. And I say that, listen, guys, we're a family church. <laughs> like, I'm not saying you're not loyal to your spouse. I'm not saying you don't love your kids. I'm saying it, that comes from your love for Jesus. Verse 38 gets a little bit tougher. More, more fear coming in. For whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we read that verse and we see the cross of Jesus. Recognize the disciples did not realize that. So the disciples don't know that Jesus is going to die on his cross. And he says, follow me and be willing to die for me. That's a little bit weird there. Like they don't, they don't realize what he's actually saying. But his point is, is that this is the ultimate self-denial. This is the ultimate me letting go of the things that, that I want, right? Like I have to walk away from those in order to die. And that's the attitude that I need to have to fully follow Jesus. D.A. Carson says this, taking one's cross does not mean putting up with some awkward or tragic situation in one's life. That's how we usually define it. Uh, but painfully dying to self. In that sense, every disciple of Jesus bears the same cross. Right, so we think about, oh, this is my cross to bear. It's this awkward thing or it's this painful thing or whatever. And Jesus is saying, it's not that it's not that, but it's a lot more than that. It's that actually my desires, my selfishness, the things that I want all become secondary and, and they fall way down the list. It has to be about actually following Jesus. The things that I think that people owe me, they don't owe me. Unless God puts it in their hearts, like that's, I don't get that. I don't get to demand that. I don't get to stomp my foot and say, this is mine. That's, that's not how the Christian life works. When we talk about living for Jesus, it's a direct challenge to the way that we naturally live, live our lives. Because at our hearts, we're all selfish. Like we're all a little bit selfish and how much we focus on that depends on how much we ultimately become and seem selfish to other people. My last application question is this. What is the next step for you as a follower of Jesus in taking up your cross and dying to yourself? when we think through what this looks in our lives, it gets really tough because I am selfish. Like that's my natural state. What do I do with my free time? Do I spend my free time on me? Is it about me? Is it about my self-care, my comfort, what makes me happy? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus says don't do anything that is self-care. I'm saying that Jesus expects a healthy balance of service for other people and enough self-care to make sure that you can continue to serve. So don't burn yourself out, but also you, you need to be doing things for other people because that's what Jesus calls you to. What about my marriage? Am I faithful to my wife out of guilt or obligation or because, well, I guess this is where we're at? Or is it because I know that Jesus calls me to love her unconditionally? Because I'll tell you what, if I do it for my own happiness, that's gonna fade. 
There's going to come a point where she's not going to fulfill every single thing that I, ought, that I think that she ought to. It's because we're both imperfect people and I have ridiculous expectations. Like that's just the way that marriage works. And so ultimately it comes down to if I love her because I get what I want, it's going to fail. If I love her because I know that Jesus called me to, it won't fail because I know who Jesus is and, and what he's done for me. What am I job? Is my job about my ambition and the requirements of what I have, what makes me happy, what the paycheck looks like, what that brings me to park in my driveway? Like, what is the reason that I go to work? Is it because that makes me feel strong and powerful and like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm great because of what I accomplish at work? Or is it, listen, God calls me to live for him wherever I go, and so my work ethic is a byproduct of the fact that I want to honor God. Is my work an opportunity to serve Jesus or is my work an opportunity for me to pat myself on the back? So Jesus wraps up and it's, it's well, he doesn't wrap up because he's going to continue, but <laughs> we're going to wrap up with 40 through 42. Jesus says, whoever receives you, so speaking of the disciples, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet receives a prophet's reward the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by, by no means lose his reward. So it's not just that we're supposed to follow Jesus and be self-sacrificial, but also there's an element where helping each other follow Jesus is a part of that idea. So if you're receiving a disciple for the sake of the fact that they're following Jesus... That's what he's talking about. And in this context, we're talking about persecution. And so it, it's this other person that I know, that I love, that I have a relationship with, or that I know is truly following Jesus, that person is being persecuted for their faith. And I'm willing to go against the cultural grain and say, I love this person, I want to help this person out, in spite of the fact that nobody else does. And so that's a sacrificial love that's all on its own. And Jesus is saying, if you're willing to sacrificially love one another the way that I've sacrificially loved you, then that's a part of what it means to be following God, to be a part of the people of God. So in this, like if you look at the history of Israel, like prophets weren't real popular. They were always accused of being traitors. There's a bunch of prophets that were thrown in jail or imprisoned or were on the run for their whole lives because they were doing what God told them to do. And so when Jesus says, if you, if you, bring, if you invite a prophet in, that's the acknowledgement that this is a person that the government is probably looking for and trying to kill, and you're harboring a fugitive, essentially, because you know that that person is following God, and you know that his witness is important, and so you're saying, I'm going to support you because of what you're, you're doing for God, and, and so it's, it becomes as selfish and as self-sacrificing as what that person is doing. So we can, we can encourage, and we can support and care for each other because that's what God calls us to do in spite of what culture around us might be saying to us. So again, my, my big idea is because Jesus cares about us, we can fearlessly follow him no matter what. And sometimes we start off with that relationship with Jesus and we say, okay, Jesus, I want to follow you and I want to be loyal to you. And we recognize that he's the one that's in control. So even when we're threatened physically, when we're threatened emotionally or, or there's people that are coming against us, we don't have to be afraid. Whatever the circumstances that's around us that causes us to be afraid, we can recognize that God is in control and he's power enough to handle it. So we have to identify what are the things that make us anxious? What are the things that I'm afraid of? And how can we deal 
with those things in a way that reflects the truth of what Jesus has taught. And then as we do that, as we're, we're starting to follow Jesus with less fear because we realize the truth of the word of God, we recognize that there might be people that don't like that and they might not appreciate that. And yet we still have to make sure that Jesus is the number one priority in our relationships. So we ask, what is the relationship in our lives that might have a higher priority than Jesus? And so we refocus and we make sure, listen, Jesus is the number one priority. I'm making him number one no matter what. I'm following him fully. And we realize that we're still pretty selfish. We still struggle with that. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's the next step for me as a follower of Jesus in taking up my cross and dying to myself? That's a really hard one, and it feels really abstract, so I want to close with this story. So in his book, No God But One, Nabil Qureshi tells of the story of Sarah Fatima. Um, she was a young Saudi woman. She was in her, her early 20s, um, and she converted to Christianity from Islam in 2008. She was raised in a fairly fundamentalist Islamic household, uh, in a nation where missionary activity is legal, illegal, converting to Christianity is illegal. So she is outside of the law with her conversion to Christianity. And so the, reason, the way she actually came to faith was by reading the Gospel of Matthew. She just kept reading it. It says she read it four times before she realized, like, this is, this is, this is God. Like, Jesus is actually God. And so she changed, her, she changed from being an, an, a Muslim to following Jesus. And her only outlet was her computer because missionaries' acti activity is illegal, and so she's just online and communicating with other Christians. That's the only outlet she had. And she was afraid to tell her family because they were, they were Muslim fundamentalists. Ultimately, she accidentally confessed her faith in Jesus during an argument with her mom and her brother, and her brother just immediately was furious. He was a member of the, the secret police that investigates uh, people that convert to Christianity, essentially. And so he was just furious. Like, this is, he's this fundamentalist, and he's angry because his sister, he realizes, has converted. So she took off. She stayed with an uncle for a couple of days. And in that time, he went in her room, and he searched everything, and he found all this stuff on her computer that talks about her following Jesus, her journals, her communications with other believers, all this different stuff. So when, he came back, when she came back home, he's like, you're a blasphemer. Like, in Islam, she's committed blasphemy. He's like, you have to repent. And he locked her in her bedroom. And a couple hours later, he came back and killed her. Like her brother killed her because she followed Jesus. And that was, that was 2008 that happened. So that's the other side of the world, and it's a couple years ago. But that's a lot more about what Jesus is talking about than what we tend to experience. So I'm not guilting you like Jesus has put you here, like it is what it is. But also, when Jesus says things like, your family might hate you, or you might have to die in following me, that's not metaphor. That's reality. And so I, I realize that I'm talking to a westernized nation where you can come to church on Sunday and have dinner with your unbelieving family, and there's probably not a ton of conflict. I recognize that. But also, we have to realize that we are in a privileged place, and we don't have some of those same things, but that doesn't change what our loyalty needs to look like. Like, we still have to follow Jesus with the willingness to, like, whatever it is, whether it's my life or just my convenience, I still have to sacrifice that because Jesus has called me to, to live for him. And I think as we choose that, as we choose to say, I'm going to choose to live for Jesus more than I'm going to choose to live for myself, what we realize is that it, it really does pay off to, to be a person willing to sacrifice themselves 
we realize that there's life in Jesus that's over and above what we can experience when, when we live for ourselves. And I, I think when we struggle with that, we can think of people like our sister Fatima, who's in heaven, right? Like she, she died for her faith. She, she gave up her family and she ultimately gave up her life, but now she's got a different life in heaven that's a lot more glorious than what we're experiencing here. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance to worship together. We thank you for a community of people that are trying to follow you. I pray that as we live our lives, that we would be willing to set aside our desires, our preferences, the things that we think that we need for you. That you would be the sole focus of our lives, that we would live fully and completely for you and let all the other stuff that happens that, that distracts from us from you or that pulls us away from you to, to go away we would be fully, fully committed to following you and that we wouldn't be afraid, that we would trust your deep care for us, your deep love for us, and your infinite power to control. We pray this in your name.